Okay, uh, this is the final lesson in this series on apostolic canonization. And if this is the first time you've uh, tuned in, I'll recap a little bit on what we mean by the term apostolic canonization. What we mean by that is that this theory is that the apostles were the only ones qualified because of their inspiration to write the books in the first place and then collect them and put their apostolic approval on those to form the canon. And so the theory of apostolic canonization is that the apostles accomplished that before they parted the earthly scene just before 70 A.D. And so we're dealing with the three steps of that process, which is the writing of the books, and then the collection of those books together, and then the certification of those books as being canonical and authoritative. And we've looked at the first two steps in past lessons, uh, dealing with the writing of the books before 70 AD, and the collection of them, which we noticed that both Apostle Paul and Peter had a collection of those writings. So our focus in our final lesson in this series will be on Peter's role in the process of certifying the New Testament books as canonical. Last time we noticed that all the New Testament writings were in circulation and were copied and collected in a complete collection by Peter and the church at Jerusalem. In this lesson, we want to show how Peter was the key person, not only in the process of collecting the inspired writings, but more importantly, in the certifying of them as canonical. By canonical, we mean that a document was considered to be inspired and absolutely authoritative on the same level with the rest of scriptures. As we noted in past lessons, the Bible does not use the word canonical in reference to itself. But it does use language which means the same thing. For instance, uh, it uses the word inspired. All scripture is inspired, Paul says in Second Timothy. He uses the phrase uh, word of God or word of the Lord or the Lord said or the rest of the scriptures like Peter does in Second Peter chapter 3. Or it uses the phrase uh, that all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching, which implies what canonical scripture really is. It's inspired and it's coming from God. And of course, in the book of Revelation and other places, we see the phrase revealed to me. Uh, Apostle Paul uses that in reference to his own teaching and his writings uh, as being something that was revealed directly to him by Christ or by the Holy Spirit. And the word prophecy, of course, it's used in the book of Revelation and other places as a word which implies canonical status or scriptural status. So all of those phrases and words are talking about the same thing that we are when we use the word canonical. Well, the question comes, I think, for a lot of people when they hear this idea of apostolic canonization, they'll immediately ask the question, is there any evidence that the 27 books of our New Testament were acknowledged to be inspired and absolutely authoritative like Old Testament scripture? Well, yeah, there really is. And we're going to look at some of that. Uh, I think we've already looked at it a little bit in the past, but I want to focus on that question a lot tonight because I think that's where the rubber meets the road in terms of skeptics. They want to see how the scripture claims to be inspired and how it backs up that claim with its internal evidence. And we'll look at some of that. For instance, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
Most of us preterists like to use that verse for its timing indicator, but there's something else buried in this verse that I think needs our attention, and that is that it claims for itself to be a prophecy, words of prophecy. That's a claim to being inspired. And so the book of Revelation is making a claim right in the first three verses to be a book of prophecy, which obviously is a claim to being revealed directly from God. And so it's not just a human production. It's not just literary production by humans. It's, it's an inspired product by God. Also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, a repeated phrase that's made over in chapter 2, verse 11, 17, verse 29, also chapter 3, verse 6, and 13. He makes this repeated phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is not John saying this to the churches. It's the Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is inspiring John to record these words that the Spirit wants the churches to understand. And so the book of Revelation is making a claim to have been directly revealed to John by the Holy Spirit as a book of prophecy. Revelation is therefore a canonical book. It was written down by an inspired apostle. It uses several key words and phrases which are indicators of its canonicity. It also seems that Peter may have been aware of the book of Revelation when he wrote his first epistle in which he says that he was writing from the city called Babylon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. This is certainly not proof that Peter had read the book of Revelation, but it is at least proof that Peter was aware of the idea that Jerusalem was Babylon in a spiritual or mystical sense, like the book of Revelation says, and was in agreement with that designation. This puts Peter's stamp of approval on the book of Revelation, which teaches that same idea. Even though Apostle John's writings were inspired and therefore canonical, it is additional proof of their canonicity when Peter shows his familiarity with and approval of another apostolic document like this. And so that's a double whammy there, a double testimony to its canonicity. Matthew was an inspired apostle, and therefore his gospel is automatically canonical. Same for John's gospel and his three short epistles. Both Mark and Luke's Gospels, also including the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, agree with Matthew and John, which were the two inspired apostle Gospels. And both Mark and Luke's Gospels, along with Acts, were written under inspiration and with the full awareness and approval of both Peter and Paul. Because of this apostolic connection and approval, they are considered to be canonical. James and Jude were brothers of Jesus and obviously approved by Peter as being canonical in authority. Since there are so many similarities between Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2, it appears that Peter was not only aware of Jude and in agreement with it, but also was approving of it since he says almost the same thing in his second epistle. The book of Acts also testifies to the close relationship of Peter and James in the church at Jerusalem. Peter would have been aware of and had access to the epistle of James there in Jerusalem and would have been able to censor it if it was unworthy of circulation among the churches. Note that the epistle of James was sent out to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, James chapter 1, verse 1. 
the very folks to whom Peter, James, and John had been commissioned to preach. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, Paul says that James, Peter, and John had been sent to the circumcised. And so that's who James is writing to here, and that's following the very pattern that Paul says Christ had commissioned them to accomplish. And so it seems real likely then that James' book would be canonical and authoritative since he was doing exactly what Jesus had told him to do. Likewise, uh, the Apostle Paul claims that his gospel was not received from other men, but by a direct revelation from Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, Paul says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, it's not a human product. It's not a, just a mere literary document produced by an uninspired man. He says, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it by man. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that is a claim for inspiration and canonical authority for his gospel that he was preaching. Paul placed his own gospel on the same level as the scriptures of the prophets. Notice he says in Romans 16, verses 25 through 27, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets. Notice he says, who is able to establish you according to my gospel and by the scriptures. He puts his own gospel on the same level as the scriptures of the prophets. Very profound uh, claim there for inspiration and canonical authority. Notice what Paul also says in his first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 36 through 38. He says, Was it from you that the word of God... That's a canonical phrase there, the Word of God. Was it from you that the Word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, I'll tell you, if a person says that, and he doesn't have canonical authority, He's putting himself in big trouble with God by making that kind of a claim if he can't back it up. It's a clear reference to the fact that the things he's teaching and preaching are from Christ himself, that it wasn't his own invention, that Christ commanded him to teach those things. And so he's claiming canonical authority for his gospel preaching and teaching and for the things that he is writing. Paul is here claiming that his writings were on a par with the Word of God, and that he was a true prophet and a true spiritual person. He claims that his instructions here in 1 Corinthians were the Lord's commandment, and therefore absolutely authoritative, and that if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. This would have been totally improper for him to say unless he was an inspired apostle with canonical uh, recognition. We should also mention what Paul says about the pillars of the Jerusalem church certifying his gospel as authoritative and commissioned by Christ. In Galatians chapter 2, he says that he went up to Jerusalem to 
check with them and make sure that the gospel he preaches was not according to human production. And he makes the claim there, or makes the statement there in Galatians 2, that those pillars of the church in Jerusalem uh, did certify his gospel as being inspired and authoritative and correct. And so that's an important internal and external witness to Apostle Paul's authority. And we need to look also at the decisions that were made in Acts chapter 15 at the council there in Jerusalem, as well as Acts 21 when Paul was arrested. Uh, he presented his gospel to him on that occasion. And the apostles and elders in Jerusalem then, on both those occasions, Acts 15 and Acts 21, approved his gospel to the Gentiles as being correct and authoritative. Another passage I think we need to look at, and, and I'm going through all these things because I think there's a lot of people who question whether or not Apostle Paul really is inspired and, and authoritative for us. And, and I think it's important for us to see his claims as well as the way Peter and the other apostles interacted with him. In First Thessalonians 2, verse 13, Paul claims that the things he spoke to the Thessalonians were received by them as what they really are. The Word of God, he says. The commandments Paul gave to the Thessalonians were by the authority of Lord Jesus. And anyone who rejected those commandments was, in effect, rejecting God himself. He tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 2 and verse 8. Paul stated to the Corinthians, The things which I wrote to you are the Lord's commandment. These statements were claims to inspiration, direct revelation, and absolute authority for his teaching, preaching, and writing. Paul clearly claimed that he had the same kind of revelation and inspiration that the other apostles possessed. His claims, however, could not certify his own writings as canonical unless Peter, who had the authority of Christ to bind and loose, would acknowledge those writings as being inspired and authoritative on a par with canonical scripture. And that's what Peter does in Second Peter chapter 3, as we'll look at here in a minute. In order for a literary work to be included in the canon of scripture, it had to possess certain characteristics. The most important of those characteristics was that the Holy Spirit must have filled that prophet, inspired him, and enabled him to speak and write those words. The Apostle Peter established this principle very clearly in his second epistle when he wrote, but, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so true prophets are speaking from God and speaking for God, speaking God's word to the people. And he says here that no prophecy, no true prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But God moved them through the Holy Spirit to speak his word. Later in the same epistle, Peter wrote that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Here is a clear claim that the apostles were speaking the commandments of the Lord himself and not coming up with this on their own, that they were inspired and speaking the Lord's commandments as prophets and apostles. Peter placed the words of the apostles on a par with the words of the Old Testament prophets here in this, in this passage, Second Peter 3, verse 2. 
Thus, in this passage, Peter is certifying all of the apostolic writings, Matthew, John, James, Jude, Paul, and even his own writings, as being canonical, because he claims that he is speaking by the Holy Spirit as well. Because some first century Christians questioned the apostolicity, that is, the canonicity, of Paul's writings, Peter leaves no room for doubt by saying this in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. He says, Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. What Peter does here is he puts Paul's writings on the same par with the rest of the scriptures. He's canonizing Apostle Paul's writings there. He's certifying that all of Paul's epistles were indeed canonical. Notice he says in all his letters, as if he has access to a complete collection of them, implying that Paul had already died, and that's why he speaks of him writing in past tense, and speaks of him eulogistically by saying, our beloved brother Paul. The implication there is that Paul had already died, and that Peter had a complete collection of all of his writings. And Peter, after reading all those and being aware of them, puts his stamp of approval, his certification on all of Paul's writings. That's very significant, I think, and that pretty much covers all the New Testament books. Once you've got all 14 of Paul's epistles, and you've got all the apostles' writings, the only two that would hang in the balance here would be perhaps James and Jude, and uh, also maybe Mark and Luke. But we've shown the apostolic connection of those books, and we know from the New Testament, the book of Acts, that... James especially had the Holy Spirit upon him and was inspired and spoke and wrote on other occasions under inspiration. So uh, it shouldn't be a problem with James and Jude, his brother, since they were both brothers of Jesus. uh, There was really no question about their apostolic authority in the early church. And Peter seems to agree with everything Jude has to say by writing the same things in his second epistle. So That pretty much puts a stamp of approval on Jude's work. And, of course, Mark was associated with Apostle Peter. The Gospel of Mark was written under the supervision of of Peter. And, of course, uh, Luke was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit and under the guidance of Apostle Paul, whom he traveled with. Luke would have been able to write his uh, Gospel and uh, the Book of Acts under the supervision of Apostle Paul, under the supervision of Apostle Peter and the Jerusalem church as well. For that two years that he and Paul were in Caesarea while Paul was imprisoned there, where he researched all of those things before he wrote. So Peter appears to have been the key leader in the whole process of deciding which books would be considered on a par with the rest of the scriptures. And this is, I believe, consistent with what Jesus said to Peter In Matthew 16, verses 17 through 19, one of the Roman Catholics' uh, favorite texts, you know, whenever you question the authority of the Pope, they'll run right to this text. Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you, 
that you, in the, in the Greek it's singular there, the you is singular, speaking just to Peter, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, I don't know anybody who has ever really plumbed the depth of that statement and explained everything that it encompasses. But the authority that Jesus is giving to Peter here must have included the authority to decide which books belong in Scripture and which ones don't. And so I'm going to include canonical authority in this authority that Jesus gives to Peter here. Now, I don't believe that's the only thing that Jesus gave to Peter there, but it certainly must be one of the things that was included in the authority that Jesus gave to him. Notice that all of the second person pronouns in these three verses that we have read are singular, referring exclusively to Peter. Jesus gave Peter the keys of the kingdom so that whatever he bound on earth would be bound in heaven as well. I believe this grants Peter some very important authority, which included the authority to decide which New Testament writings were to be considered canonical. In one of our previous lessons in the series, we shared a list of examples from the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, which showed how Peter used those keys to open the doors of the kingdom to both the circumcised and uncircumcised. And I've got a, a list of those statements uh, in the appendix to this lesson outline. We saw how Peter used that binding authority and loosing authority in the case of Paul to certify that the gospel preached by Paul was inspired and authoritative, just like the other apostles. In conclusion, in this series we have shown that apostolic canonization of New Testament documents before AD 70 is a valid possibility and one which deprives the, the Romanist of their apostolic succession argument and places the authority back into the hands of the first century apostles and Peter especially. The authority that Christ gave to Peter was not passed on to successive generations of popes. Otherwise, writing by inspiration and certifying new books as canonical would also have been passed down, thus leaving the canon of Scripture open forever. Now that's something which the Roman Catholics don't like to hear us Protestants say, but that's the implication. They try to get around it and try to explain it away, but that's ungetoverable as far as I'm concerned. Either they have to say that the apostolic authority and canonical authority ceased with the death of all the apostles, or they have to admit that the canon is still open and that people have still got that canonical authority and can still write and produce canonical books today. It's the horns of a dilemma, and they have to face those two options. And I think it's a, a lot safer to take the position that Apostle Peter is the last one to have had that authority, and it died with him. It did not continue on after that. No succeeding generation has that canonical authority. No succeeding generation has the gift of inspiration, so they cannot write inspired books any longer. 
This means that the collection of writings approved by Peter and the first century apostles would have been the first and only authoritative canonical list. Furthermore, it means that inspired men, rather than later generations of uninspired men, did the writing, collecting, and certifying of that canonical list. The result is a canon we can trust and which renders any determinations by later uninspired churchmen as being secondary and subordinate at best. Now, this conclusion may be troubling to the Romanist and those Protestants who have compromised with the Romanist apostolic succession idea, but it's a great comfort to all of us who consider our New Testament documents as being the full and final authoritative revelation from our God and Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, again, I'm not saying that all or even many of the churches throughout the Roman Empire in the first century had copies of all 27 New Testament books. Jerusalem may have been the only church that had copies of all 27 books. Uh, but we know Jerusalem had it because Peter claims to have seen and been aware of and had in his possession a complete collection of Paul's writings. And I'm sure he had all the other writings that were produced there in Jerusalem as well, where he was all of his life. So the full and wide distribution of the canon is not necessary to the theory of apostolic canonization. All that is necessary for the theory of apostolic canonization is that Peter and the Jerusalem church had copies of all 27 books, and that Peter gave his approval of them before he passed from the earthly scene in AD 64 or 65. That much seems to be indicated by the statements of Peter and Paul, which we have examined in this series of lessons. And this idea, which is a very conservative approach to the New Testament canon, needs and deserves, I believe, broad consideration, not only from the preterist community, uh, which pretty much agrees with it, but it needs and deserves broad consideration from the global Christian community as well. One of my main sources for dating the New Testament books in this series was Arthur Ogden's excellent little book, The Development of the New Testament. And unfortunately, it's out of print at this time, although I would recommend that you do a search on the Internet and see if you can find a used copy. It's a well worth having. Marvelous little book. The name of it is The Development of the New Testament by Arthur Ogden. And I've incorporated a lot of his argumentation into my book, uh, First Century Events in Chronological Order. So you'll get the best of that material in my book. The title of that book is The Development of the New Testament by Arthur Ogden. He talks about how the New Testament documents developed into a completed canon. And he doesn't really use the phrase apostolic canonization in there, but boy, that's what he's teaching and he's pushing right toward it, and all of his argumentation is, is leading that direction. So it was a very useful source for me in my first century events book. Now, he's a partial preterist. You know, Gary DeMar and Ken Gentry and a lot of these partial preterists have been very helpful in moving people in our direction. I really appreciate those guys, but Arthur Ogden is good because he takes all the New Testament writings as being written before 70 A.D., including the book of Revelation. And he's written a marvelous commentary on the book of Revelation from a pre-70 date, 
and we have it on our book list. It's called The Avenging of the Apostles and Prophets. He claims that, that the book of Revelation was written just before 70 A.D., predicting the destruction of Jerusalem for the very purpose of avenging the killing of the prophets and the apostles by the Jews. Marvelous commentary. The name of it, again, is The Avenging of the Apostles and Prophets by Arthur Ogden. And he's got a workbook that goes along with it, which is really helpful. All right, so that pretty well wraps it up. If anybody wants this full series of lessons, uh, just email me, and I'll send you the PDF document of that. Uh, my email address is preterist1 at preterist.org.